Welcome to the 4th Down Experience, the podcast devoted to special teams. Your host of the 4th Down Experience, former pro free agent, nine-year professional kicking coach out of the Midwest, Coach Chris Hughesby. Alongside Coach Chris Hughesby is a former two-time Arena Bowl champ, nine-year pro kicking coach, rep in the South, Coach Brian Jackson. Hey guys, how's it going? This is Brian Jackson and Chris Hughesby of the Fourth Down Experience podcast. And uh, we have a great guest today and Worth Gregory. He was a three-time Ray Guy Award watchlist candidate that played at ECU over on the East Coast and uh, was also a special teams coach at NC State and uh, is now running his own uh, kicking business over in in Carolina. And we're excited to speak with you, Worth. Uh, How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, guys. Appreciate it worth being on with us. Uh, it's been fun to get to know you over the last three or four years. I think I first met you actually when you just got into coaching, right? Were you at Iowa Western for a little bit? I was at, yeah, so I, I started out my coaching career at Ellsworth Community College and was there for, uh, I want to say, 11 days before I left to go to Utah State. Oh, that's what it was. Nice. Well, what a great opportunity. No doubt. Yeah, it was a crazy place to start and move to the middle of Iowa on the drop of a hat but it was awesome well let's talk about the coaching career how did you decide to get into it what were your thoughts and then what was the process of trying to get those types of jobs because we know that there's a lot of kickers these days that do want to be some sort of coach and, and and the specialist coach route is becoming more common now so how did you get into that and what was your process like so I got kind of lucky. Um, I, I had been bouncing around some NFL teams doing tryouts uh, for punting. I was I went to the Jaguars mini camp, and then you guys kind of know how it is. I mean, the years the years got to line up on, almost perfectly for you as a specialist, whether it's a kicker or punter, to make it to the league. Maybe good enough, but one year they only my the year I came out, it just so happened that not a single punter was drafted for the first time in eleven years or something like that. So it was a bad year to come out as a punter, but. Um, awesome that I was able to get that opportunity, but I still wanted to be in football. So um, I decided to, I created a little resume of kind of my playing career. And then I emailed it um, to every single special teams coordinator in the nation um, from D1 to NAIA and told them I was looking to work for free. So um, that's exactly how I got in. Uh, I found a job on Football Scoop for the JUCO job and called the coach immediately, interviewed for that, um, got accepted at Ellsworth Community College, moved to Iowa as the special teams coordinator, uh, assistant head strength coach, head of video, uh, academic coordinator. I think I had like 20 roles or something like that for 10 days. Um, And lucky enough, while I was there, I got a response back from Utah State. that the coach had just randomly opened up my email and that they needed a special teams QC. So that's how I got started. And then I moved out to Utah and from there went to NC state after a year. Nice. So what was kind of cool about that is hearing you essentially tell anybody out there that's looking for this in the future, a good caveat to, to get into the coaching business. Obviously hearing, you know, I'll work for free as attractive to those folks. Um, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And, and so maybe talk about uh, 
the Utah State experience and then also getting into NC State. Maybe talk about those experiences. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so Utah State, for anyone really listening that's trying to get into coaching, you got to really accept at the beginning you're either going to get a GA rule and have to take classes or you're going to be a QC and not take classes, but you'll make like 700 a month for 10 months. So I think I made, I think I made like $7,000 for the whole year. Um, and that's without housing and everything. So after you pay all that, you're basically, you're basically working for free and hopefully you got parents to help you out. Um, Cause that's the only way to really get into coaching is to start at that level. Um, but it was an awesome experience that the Mountain West is one of the best conferences to coach and play in in general. I was lucky enough to be able to coach at some awesome stadiums out there, be able to travel all the way to Hawaii to Wyoming and be able to coach there. I was, uh, I was up in the box um, and got to be able to look down on the field and constantly be able to help out our team uh, kind of make adjustments throughout the year. Uh, the biggest thing that I was lucky enough to have at Utah state was we had a great, we had a great punter, and then we also had another – we had two great punters, but one of them blew his back out right before the season, uh, Aaron Dalton. So he was able to really help me out and get close to the guys. And we had an amazing kicker, uh, Dominique Eberly, just an absolute elite kicker that um, hopefully he's going to get a shot here in the coming months at the NFL. So that's what made it really easy for me is having two older guys to really, really help me out and be able to control the room per se and – be able to push them to chase after some awesome, awesome goals. So when you were at Utah State, at what point, I mean, what were your roles? What were the um, the amount of hours you put in as a specialist coach, some of the duties you held, and maybe like post-game kind of grind work as well? No question. Um, from Utah State to NC State, they were, they were basically the same, but at NC State, I had a little more uh, responsibility. But so Utah State, you're, I mean, at the QC, special teams QC role during the season, I'll, I'll cover the fall because that's really – if someone wants to get into it, they need to hear what the fall will be like. Is You're, you're probably getting in during the fall at 5, uh, 5.30 a.m. and then you leave uh, when the last coach leaves. So that may be 1 a.m., that may be 2 a.m. Um, I slept under my desk for a couple times in there. So at Utah State, the first two months, I actually uh, – I lived in the running back's room. No one knows that, but – Every night whenever uh, we got done with everything, I went to the running back's room and shut the lights off and slept there from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. So the, posit the positive of that, though, is everyone thinks you're working crazy hard because they always see you at the office. They just don't know you live there. <laughs> but you just for the, for the fall, you're, you're kind of expected to constantly be there. I mean, we had a, at Utah State, we had afternoon practices. So we had, a, I think it was 7 or 6.30 a.m. all-in staff meetings. And then you're there usually to 11, 11 plus a night, um, especially NC State. I was there a little bit longer. So you're expected on that during the season. And then post game, you know, the, that's the hardest thing as a coach uh, for the QC and the GA roles is the post game stuff. Because the minute the game ends, instead of being excited about the win, you know, you're already behind on the next opponent. So let's say we play at. Um, the night games were the worst. Uh, GAs and QCs all hate the night games. As cool as it is to play at night, the game's going to end at 1 a.m., and then you know that Sunday you need the full breakdown done by 8 a.m., um, 8 or 9 a.m. So you're, you're probably going to stay up that entire night. So you're, you're usually going on like a 40-hour little run there from Saturday to Sunday night where you're, you're up the whole time. So 
getting the game plan ready for the next opponent. So obviously during the week, if you can get a lot ahead, it'll really help you out. But the problem is, is the team you're playing is playing on Saturday too. So you got to wait to see that film before you can break it down. So it's interesting that you brought up uh, having to, well, not necessarily having to, but having other coordinators, even head coaches, uh, being there late in the evening. I've heard about this from other coaches and kind of feeling almost like obligated to still be at the facility. So there's yep. not a bad, you know, is that, so that's actually true. Yeah, it's not as much. Um, it's going to be different at every school. Um, I've heard some stories at West Virginia with Holgerson, how um, the coaches got their work done and got out of there because the head coach kind of had the precedence of like, get your stuff done and get home to your wives and families. Cause I know Holgerson liked to, he liked to ski and snowboard before and after work sometimes. So like, it depends on the co- the coach that you're working for, but I'm kind of used to the head coach wanting to be the last one to leave. He wants to outwork the assistants. And when you have that going on is you have a, you have a constant tension of no one wanting to leave the office because they don't want to be seen as the guy that's not at their desk. So you're always, if you're, especially as a GA or QC, you need to be the last one to leave. Um, if you're a full-time position coach, they can kind of take the hit because they know they're making three, 400 grand a year. So at, at nine and 10 o'clock, they can just be like, okay, I'm going home to my families. But, Everyone knows that your point, you don't have a family and you have nothing else you need to be doing. So your best bet is to just sit at your desk and find extra work to do or uh, show that you're there and turn like a podcast on and put your headphones in or something. So worth, you know, um, obviously you had a great career, um, averaged 43 yards punt for whole career at East Carolina, which is, which is very impressive. Um, you know, as a coach, when, when you're at Utah State and NC State, and obviously now you're you're a personal kicking coach now, but when you're at those universities, what were some things you were looking for in high school punters or, or transfer punters? What were some three or four key things that you were looking for to recruit a punter? I think the biggest thing that I look for in a punter is um, you want to, at the FBS level, especially NC State and the ACC, is you're looking for a guy with a really long frame. Um, it's hard to get an FBS offer as a punter only or as a punter focus if a kid is less than six foot, just being honest, it's hard. Um, unless the kid can absolutely smash the ball, it's really hard to find those guys. Um, obviously, you can be elite in doing it. Um, there's some punters that I've seen in Division One that are shorter and can crush the ball. But just from a, a numbers basis, really, is you're really looking for a, a longer frame guy and then you're looking for an athlete more than anything. If you have a guy that has the ability to hit the four nines, doesn't have the consistency, um, and he's an athlete, you can take the time and work with him. And if you get him on campus, have the drills and stuff ready for him so that you can get him ready to play. But having a punter at, uh, that's an athlete more than anything is important. It was important to me. Because you can get away with it at kicker for the guy not being as crazy of an athlete. But with a punter having the ball in your hands, um, I always tell my punters right now is how quick their hands are and how good their hands are is, is 80% of the punt uh, for me. Because if you can move quick, what you're expected to do now in FBS, uh, you can have a good punt. Oh, it's crazy. So besides being the QC, I assuming you were dubbed also the specialist coach and then how much were you involved with the recruiting process of specialists at each of the programs you were at? So at uh, NC State, I was completely in control. Um, the coach, uh, 
the coach at uh, NC State special teams coordinator, Todd Goble, he let me take complete control. So um, the specialist room was mine. They report to me. I, I'm in charge of punishment, class, everything, all the way down the road. And that's the way they do it there is uh, you're the 11th position coach as a special teams QC. Um, you have a lot more responsibility, obviously. There was times where I'm – me and the special teams coordinator are 50-50 on developing the game plan, coming up with everything. So you're expected to do a lot more in that role, um, but it really gets you ready to be a coordinator if that's what you're aiming to do. At, uh, at Utah State, it was a little different. Um, I was special teams QC, but we also brought on – we brought on a second QC, um, Jason Shoemaker, to be – the goal was for him to be the coordinator, but the two days after he got there, uh, the NCAA put in that headset rule. So he wasn't – so what happened is he came there to be the coordinator. So they were going to put him as the 11th assistant, basically, and have him off the field and just name him the coordinator and just put him on the headset on game day. But that headset rule really changed everything. So it ended up me and him being kind of like co-QCs and doing everything together, which was awesome for me because I got to learn a lot. But it really changed the way we had to coach. A lot of times, going back to just the recruiting side of things and, and even just for the athlete specialist side – I know Brian and I preach this a lot and, and you've been doing it now that you've been more of a, a private kicking coach. You know, we tell kids that it's important to try to communicate to these coaches through Twitter and DM and email and in as many ways as they can try to get a hold of a coach. So you being the coach on the other end, what, what was it like? How did you approach the communication side of it? Maybe are there any rules that, the, that these kickers and putters should know when trying to contact you some protocol I know it's kind of a loaded question but like how do you how do you view it all as a coach or when you were handling those roles the best the best way no question uh for me especially as a younger coach was to reach me on twitter um all these coaches that are because the QC is going to handle the majority of the recruitment um all these QCs are younger coaches that want to be coordinators one day and they know that to market themselves they have to have social media so every single special teams QC in the nation has Twitter. Um, every two years, you're gonna the QC is gonna leave the job. That's just how it is, and he's gonna go find a bigger role. And so they know they need to market themselves. So they're all gonna have Twitter. So that's why I say Twitter is the best option to reach out to them. Now the biggest the biggest advice that I would give um, on that what kids don't understand is that unless you're the there's so many rules with the contact periods is they need to know if they're a younger guy that he can't even respond. Um, I saw it a lot where sophomores or even juniors before their first game would hit me up and you can't respond till uh, after that first game if the kid's a junior. So that's one of the big things I would say is make sure you know your class and sometimes he's not responding solely because he's not allowed to. But the only thing he's allowed to send you if you're a younger guy is the camp info. And then he can send you the camp info. And if you ask a question about the time to show up, he can do that. But he can't answer any other questions if you're a junior or below. So knowing that um, is something that kids kind of got to know so that they know they're not being uh, forgotten. Good insight, Worth. Um, so maybe talk about what's transpired over the last few months now. You know, uh, are, are you still coaching in the college industry? If not, you know, what is your new endeavor and, and, you know, go in detail on it for sure. Yeah. So right now I coach, uh, I got out of college coaching full time. Uh, I coach kickers and punters in the Raleigh area. Uh, we have long snappers as well. Lucky enough in North Carolina, somehow we have 
like three of the top five long snappers in the nation. Um, just crazy amount of talent of long snappers in the Raleigh area. Um, but we have a bunch of guys here in Raleigh. We have 10 to 25 guys every, every week that work with us on a consistent basis. Um, obviously, with coronavirus going on right now, uh, we've had to adapt a little bit. But um, I do that, and then I am actively uh, interviewing right now for a digital marketing role. That was my uh, background coming out of college. So everyone's kind of halted all the interviews right now with everything going on, but that's kind of my main goal. want to find some ways here that we can help our the, the listeners and the specialists. In your eyes, going back to you know being a coach, how often should a specialist try to reach out to a college coach? Weekly, monthly, you know, because those are the type of questions we get all the time, and we only can give our best kind of guesstimate based on feedback we get. But on your end, what's an appropriate amount of time somebody should be reaching out? And then is there a point where you'll just tell the athlete that you're just not interested? Like, how, do you, how did that part work? So I tried to – being a kid that's been in their position before, I treated it slightly different. Um, I responded to every single kid that DM'd me with at least something. Um, but every coach is not like that at all. Um, that's not even close. The majority of coaches won't even look at it. So on Twitter, I got um, – and kids need to hear this one – is on Twitter, as me as a special teams QC as at an ACC school um, that didn't even make a bowl game, I'm getting 55-plus DMs a day. Um, just absolutely absurd. Like if I didn't look at my Twitter for five days, I would have – close to like two 300 dms um because what happens is every position reaches out to every coach because kids are smart about it they just they got to play the numbers game so that's how many i'm getting every single day um if it would i only responded to kickers and punters and the any other positions i kind of just forwarded to other coaches if i thought they were good enough but that's how many you're i'm getting every single day if you're a, if you're a kicker and punter and you're trying to reach out to a coach Number one, if he follows you back, that's a big deal because that means he's at least looked at your profile. And then I would aim for once a month. Now, if you're, you message him on the first of the month and he doesn't respond all month and you message him the first of the month on the next month and he doesn't respond again, then I'd probably slow down or give up. Because um, messaging him, if when he goes to look at the Twitter messages and sees that you've messaged him 35 times and he's never responded, like that's that's obviously a bad look. So there comes a point when you're kind of nagging the guy and it's a little too much. But if he's responding, that's a whole different thing. Um, if the coach is responsive to it, then you want to hit him with something once a month. Uh, I tell my guys that they need to put out a video of them kicking on a practice field or doing some type of kicking every single week on Twitter. Put out a video of you kicking every week. And so the main goal is that so they see you in the feed. And then what you're going to do with that is that you want to message it to your list of coaches that are responding once a month to constantly keep uh, contact with them. Nice. Worth, this is nice. all great stuff. I just want to keep continuing on it. Um, I talk about Twitter etiquette with kickers and punters. You know, sometimes they can give off the wrong tone or the wrong vibe with some of the stuff they put out or, or the text. What are some, like, things that bothered you or drove you up the wall as a coach or maybe even other coaches that you knew that when guys would tweet stuff at them or tag them, what were three or four things that just, like, I don't even like this kid just because of the way he posted this tweet or something like that. Yep. So whenever I would just sit there and scroll through my Twitter feed, if I saw anything that was just like basically every coach's nightmare. And like I'll, we talk, we used to talk about this all the time. Every coach's nightmare is that their finger slips on the Twitter button and hits the like button on something they shouldn't have liked. Um, no matter. Cause the, 
you never know what's going to show up on your Twitter feed, whether it's someone posting some links that should, are absolutely awful or saying some things that are terrible. You know, and you, your biggest fear as a coach is I used to talk to coaches how every night they would just go through their likes to make sure they didn't like anything bad because their biggest fear is that their finger slips and hits that hard button and they accidentally like it and then one screenshot away from your career ruined. So that's the biggest fear of every coach. So if they see – if anything pops up on their feed that's even questionable with cuss words, with pornographic anything, with any type of picture that's bad, um, they're going to unfollow you immediately. They're not even going to look at your profile. So if I saw that in my feed, I would unfollow kids because my biggest fear is if – what if your finger slips and hits that like button when you were just trying to scroll, someone screenshots it, and then your career is over. So that's the number one thing I would say is make sure – Everything you like and retweet shows up in your Twitter feed so coaches will see it. So I wouldn't be liking or tweeting, even if it's funny. Like, don't even – it's like there's nothing – there's no upside. Keep it as your business profile. It's your, it's your resume. I would only be liking and tweeting things that the head coach of Alabama, you know he would want to see. If he wants – if you think Nick Saban would want to see it, then like it. But if not, then don't put it on your profile. And then the second – the biggest thing for me, this is my number one, is if a, a mom or dad reached out to me. That was my number one. Because um, that was – if the, the mom or dad is reaching out to me, then I'm immediately going to drop the kid if they're doing all the, the work for them. Yeah, those are some, some great points right there. What are your thoughts sometimes when a specialist will post a video and then in the comment section they tag like 12 college coaches? Like is that cool, not cool, or you just kind of observe that video and either move on or – decide if you want to recruit them further yeah I think that's kind of a new wave of kids have been doing that the last couple of years um I hadn't seen it before now uh but I really see it now because kids will tag me thinking that I'm still uh, at NC State but I think the the best way to do it is maybe tag like two um that are probably not following you back um that might be the way to do it to kind of get them noticed but the guys that are tagging like six to ten plus I think it looks like it's a little too much um, because what happens is every time – so, like, if you, tag, uh, uh, if you tag me in one and then you put 10 other coaches on there, every time that someone retweets or likes it, it shows up in their profile. Um, so sometimes they'll, they'll click the detail, expand or whatever, and pull their, their, their tag off there so that their phone isn't blowing up. So I think that's one of the, the downsides of it is every time someone likes or retweets it, they're going to constantly get updates. So I think having too many is bad. Um, maybe if, if you have an offer from a school, I'd probably, put, I'd probably tag them on each video, maybe, if it's good enough. Um, but if not, I'm not sure the offer thing is the way to go. I mean, the tagging thing is the way to go. Hey, Worth, question here. So what, um, what we tell guys, or, or I'm, I mainly tell guys this, um, with the whole preferred walk-on offer deal, the PWO, all right, you know, like, so now we've gone from 105 to 110 to fall yep. camp, right? And so you as a high school guy going through the process and you playing college football and being part of the process and, and seeing other guys in high school and helping the recruitment process and then actually being a coach for a few years and now being a kicking coach, okay, just with your whole experience. All right, so hear what, hear what I have to say. And then tell me how you would have answered it, like when you were coaching it. Okay, I'm okay. I'm totally fine with getting critiques um, and feedback, whether it be negative, positive, or in the middle. But when 
I've had guys over the last five, six years, they get the PWO, right? They just get off the, off the phone with the coach. Someone gave them a PWO. And of course, I want to be excited for the kids, so I'm excited first. But I'm already itching to ask the question. And the question for me is, is did, did any part, did in any part of the conversation, did you actually ask if you're going to be invited to fall camp or are you going to be a part of the 105, which is now the 110, which is the fall camp numbers in August before the regular student body shows up. And most kids will say like, no coach, like I, I either forgot or I was too scared to. I've always told kids, if a coach just offered you a PWO, they obviously like you. So if, if you cordially, nicely ask at some point in the conversation, hey, coach, is this, does this mean that I have a chance to compete in fall camp or be part of the 110? They're, they seem to be hesitant to ask because they're worried that if they ask that, that they're going to like – the coach is going to, you know, retract and take back the offer. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think every kid needs to ask that right when they get the offer. Um, it's, it's a really important question and it changes. It's a huge difference. Um, I made, I made a YouTube video, uh, last week about like the ranking of offers and how they work from, uh, whether it's a spring invite walk on all the way to a full scholarship to a, uh, early enrollee. And I ranked them and I put out a little YouTube video if any kids want to check that out. Um, but that's, that's a huge difference for me. If a coach is, here's the way I view it, is if a coach is bringing you, uh, if he offers you a PWO and tells you you're not going to camp, they don't expect you to play in the next two years. Not just the next year, but the next two years. Because if they were expecting you to play in the next two years, they'd at least bring you into camp as a camp leg. So if that, there is a massive difference there, because if they're not going to bring you into camp and they're just going to bring you in for spring ball, they're not really – not only are they not expecting you to play anytime soon, is they're kind of just – got to accept that you're going to be a, a camp leg or just a, a power leg through all of fall camp and all through all of uh, the season, I'm sorry, because now you're just going to go straight to scout punt return immediately. Um, so that's the question right out the gate is, hey, Coach, thank you for the offer. I know you guys, it's really difficult to work around the numbers. I understand that. Does this include camp? And if so, uh, and if not, is there a date that you could tell me um, that you guys will know the camp stuff? Because at, at that point, if they're getting offered right now, whether it's going into next season, these, these coaches won't know the exact numbers for camp until probably May, um, May, June at the latest. Um, they meet about it once a month. And they'll be able to tell uh, – the coach will tell them how many numbers he has for specialists for camp. And that rarely changes. So they, they'll know how many guys they can take into camp. So asking that question is very important. I would ask that immediately. You've kind of done it all. You've been an athlete. You've coached. You've obviously played. And then now you're a kicking coach as well, tr privately training specialists. What is the most important film, if you were to rank different types of film, that – specialists should work on to get to their to get to those college coaches for evaluation between huddle film lesson film uncut film evaluation camp film like what in your opinion from the, from the college side of things were some of the most important types of videos to look at obviously your huddle if your huddle is just absolutely like top notch and your game film is crazy if you're a punter and you're in game and you're averaging 
massive hang times and distance, then your huddle needs to be your number one thing. Um, after that, being able to create uh, content once a week uh, of you just going out and kicking for punters, I would try to get four or five punts in a row uh, directional. So uh, one of the guys that I've trained recently, uh, Connor Wesselman out of Georgia, he does a really good job. Uh, every week he goes out and videos himself uh, just kicking left hash to left, tries to, tries to put the ball right on the numbers or out of bounds, and just puts the hang time distance to every ball and does that left and right hash and then puts it out once a week. And he's gotten crazy amounts of feedback off that. And that's, that's something that I think is really good for punters. And then for kickers, going out and making a video of you hitting four or five kicks every week uh, if you're trying to do that route. But obviously the huddle, if your huddle is absolutely killer and you hit 20 field goals and you have a long of 55 in, in game, you know, like that's, that's number one. Like that's, that's the number one thing. But everyone knows, I mean, I went to my high school, I think we kicked one field goal in two years. So we know how that works. And I, but I, uh, these coaches know how important the off the field stuff is as well. So if you're able uh, to have that over your huddle, then that's, that's okay. Um, as long as you're constantly producing content and there's enough where they can evaluate you. Um, the reason I say for my guys is whenever they DM coaches, is I would say to DM them with uh, your pinned tweet. So what you're going to do is you're going to pin a tweet with your workout film. And the reason I say to do that is because you can, if you have your uh, Twitter set up to business, then you can click on the little uh, graph on the bottom right, and it'll tell you how many times uh, the tweet's been clicked on, and it'll tell you all the demographics of it. So you can really click on it and see 8,000 people have read this. So you can really see – if you're messaging all these coaches, if it's working, if they're opening it. So that's why I tell them to use the pinned tweet instead of just sending your huddle link because the huddle doesn't – you can't really tell what your click-through rate is for that. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, okay, just to feed off that then, you know, we all know as, as coaches and we often talk about this is, you know, the next wave of special teams coaches are the young ones and so they've already kind of gone through it. We all know that sort of clipped film is typically the best – reps you know say if you you kick 25 and you used five you know we all kind of know that game but if if a specialist had to send that type of clipped film that maybe wasn't uncut to a coach how many what's a what's a good amount of reps to show on a video where like you feel like you can get a good assessment as a college coach so as a college coach if a guy's a combo which is really what every division one coach wants like no question he wants a guy that can do all three because whenever they travel to games um, just numbers are limited, so you need a guy that can back up. Um, obviously, if you're hitting 60 hard five O's again, like you're doing that, then you're straight. Like you probably can just punt and you don't need other film. But having all three is really important. So what I'd say is on on your Twitter profile, your pin tweet should be as a combo. Is you should open up with your strongest thing, whether it's um, whether it's field goals or whether it's punts. So I would put probably four clips in there of you punting just hitting massive punts like your big time balls and then three or four clips of you hitting field goals and make sure there's a deep field goal in there they want to see that you have leg strength so 50 plus and then end the video with two kickoffs and make sure those kickoffs go through the uprights or out the back of the end zone they need to be 75 um if you're trying to play at the fbs level every ball needs for kickoffs needs to be out the back and if you have like if you're a guy um, and you have if you kicked off your high school team and you're kicking off from the 40, obviously, and it's only landing on like the goal line, 
you don't need, you can tell coaches that you kick off, but don't put your stats. I would I would kind of hide it, you know, because at the college level that means that the ball is laying on the five yard line, you know, like it's and that's that's no go for them, especially at the FBS level. So I'm not saying hide it, but kind of put it like you don't need to really be promoting that. Like kids putting up a Twitter video of them hitting a kickoff to the five yard line is a huge red flag for most coaches. I would assume especially so would, if you're a senior, right? What? Especially if you're a senior. Yeah, if you're a senior and you're saying I'm a Division One kicker, uh, I expect the first kickoff on your highlight tape to be through the uprights, like no question, because um, everyone knows you're only going to show us your best one, and hopefully out of your 50 kickoffs in a year, you have one that you crushed. And if out of your 50 kickoffs in a year, if your best one is only five deep, then that's not enough for Division One or FBS because shoot, go look at uh, look at BT Potter Clemson. He hit. Uh, when we played him at NC State, he had 10 kickoffs, and eight of them uh, went out the back. Three of them went through the uprights. And that's, you know, and that's that's what they expect from every single kickoff guy. So if you're going to promote yourself as a kickoff guy, like that's what you got to be, is you got to be hitting every ball to the back of the end zone. So what I, what I would tell them is on their pinned tweet to have three or four punts, three or four field goals, and then a couple kickoffs. So aim for like 30 seconds because that's just the longest that – you'll be able to grab their attention on a video because this isn't, they're never going to offer you off this video. They're never going to offer you off your huddle or your video online. What they're going to do is they're going to, it's going to be a check mark to get you to camp and where they're paying attention to you because everyone can get a camp invite, whether or not you get a camp invite and you're on that main page that they print off before the camp that has the top 10 guys that they're watching is what you're aiming for. Uh, I, mean, I think it's raw and to the point, you know, more matter of fact there on the answer. I mean, but I still think there are plenty of room for guys that can hit a 63-yard 4-0 ball that can play FBS, FCS football. I mean, you don't have, in my opinion, you don't have to be hitting it 70 yards consistently all the time to play FBS football. I mean, there's, you know, now with the fair catch rule, if you can master a 4-0, 4-1 hang, uh, technically 62, 63 yards, um, I mean, in my opinion, with my experiences, that's that's almost a guaranteed fair catch, depending on the returner and the return game. You know, so I, I, I'm kind of indifferent on that. I think, uh, you know, if you have a ball that you kicked off through the uprights and you can post that, I mean, that's, in my opinion, that's a rarity. There's not a whole lot of guys that are, that are hitting 80-yard kickoffs out there. Um, but I think if you can consistently show that you're hitting it if you're going to hit it 60, 62, 63 yards and barely getting it to the end zone or, or getting it barely into the end zone for a touchback, I think that you need to be able to show that you can get up there in the high threes or the low fours if you want to play at that high level. That's just purely my opinion. Yeah, I, I think obviously those will help you out. Um, and for kickoffs, you see a lot of guys get their legs stronger even from senior of high school to to when they're in college. but. Um, just for the teams that we were playing, uh, shoot, at Utah, Utah State, our rule was our returner put his heel seven yards deep in the end zone, and hang time was irrelevant. No matter how high the ball was kicked, you were taking it out. So, And that's how it is in the SEC. Uh, they put them halfway in the end zone because there's no way the, re the returner doesn't know the difference between a 4-1 and a 3-7. Like you can tell kind of, but when you're back there staring up at the ball, these guys can't really tell. 
Um, our our goal is shoot. Our coach at NC State, he said either kick it out of the back of the end zone, give us a crazy high hang time on the goal line. But if you're going to put it on the ten yard line, I'd rather have it out of bounds. Well, that that was with the uh, because they can't sleep well at night. Every shoot, I could I could hear my coordinator on the headset every time the ball landed on the goal line or forwards. You can hear him just like tense up on the headset because he's so afraid of them returning it. Because the day they return one is the day we get fired. But I mean, like being telling a, a returner seven yards deep, I, I didn't see that. I've seen guys standing two yards deep, and the ball and ball goes over their heads, and they and they put their arms out sideways. So I, I it don't depends know on the guy league. you have back there at the conference, really. Like yeah. SEC is SEC, they're taking it. Like when we played Florida, and when I was in college. Um, they told the kid if they, he caught it in the end zone, he felt like go and go. Like, if he thought he could make it to 20, go. But it depends on the dude you have. Like, Florida State, like, every ball is coming out unless you're kicking out the back of the end zone. Right. Um, but, I mean, we, all, we, also have remember, the we also have to remember, this isn't just SEC and ACC. There's 130-plus yeah. schools in the FBS. And, no I mean, the guy that I trained for several years, uh, Jack Martin at Troy, um, I mean, he would miss hit balls to the seven, eight yard line with a four, two hang and guys would fair catch all the time. However, when they played against Southern Miss and the returner was running back touchdowns like crazy last year, and he's going to be a, one of the top draft guys this year. Um, he hit, he hit one short and hit it really, really high. And, and he brought it to the house, you know? So I think it just depends yep. on who you're playing and all, but it, I still think that I don't want kids to hear this and think I have to hit 80 yards to play FBS football, and that's not accurate. I mean, there's plenty of guys. Not not everyone's BT Potter. There are plenty of guys out there no that are hitting, hitting four zero balls to the goal line, and are and as long as they're on the numbers where the coach wants them to put it, they're doing their job. Um, obviously, we we'd all we all would love to hit the ball five seven nine deep every time, um, but I do think your answer was was good in in the point that if you really want the pure hard facts of FBS major football, you're going to have to be hitting it to the middle, to the back of the end zone. If you, if you want to kick at this high of a level on the kickoff position, you need to consistently show that. I do, I do agree with that. Um, yeah. If you're going to market yourself as a kickoff guy, definitely. Yeah. And one of the worst things you can do is hit the ball out of bounds. I mean, cause that's, that's where you lose all trust with your coaching staff. Oh, no question. We played a kicker at, like I feel bad for this kid. We were we were all praying for him on the sideline. Me and the specialist, he kicked five in a row out of bounds at Boston College last year. Ooh. And I I did not want to be in that meeting the next day. So worth our flagship question that we ask everybody. So I believe you are ninety second to interview, which is pretty crazy. Question we ask everybody, and we're gonna have a two part question of this based on your experience. But over the course of your playing days, uh, can you tell us your five favorite stadium experiences? or five favorite stadiums to play in. And then the part B will be your five favorite stadiums to coach in because of your four-year career as a college coach. I would say um, my five favorite stadiums to play in, number one um, has got to be ECU, the school I went to. Um, I'm not just saying that because I went to it, but ECU, when you've when you got a winning record, that boneyard at night is, is, is hopping. That student section is crazy. Um, I've never seen a school like ECU. It's awesome. Um, I would say after that, we played at Florida, um, which was absolutely nuts, especially because we, it was a close game with them. 
Um, South Carolina, awesome. Virginia Tech, and then we got to travel out to play at BYU. Um, I hated that experience because I got a pump locked, but probably one of the coolest places to play in. Um, after that, probably my five favorite to coach in. Um, number one has got to be is got to be West Virginia. We played at West Virginia last year and lost at NC State, but I've never seen anything like that atmosphere. That that was absolute nuts. Um, there's a little bit of an elevation. The kickers and punters love it out there, but it was just that student section and that that fan base is just wild for West Virginia football. Uh, if you if you uh, the if you're from uh, West Virginia and you want to play football, I'm surprised you're going to leave the state. Like that blew my mind. Um, Utah State, awesome school to coach at. Uh, I got to I got to go there, and it was um, obviously we had six games a year there, so it was a crazy. A crazy fan base as well. It's a little different for Utah State. Is you would uh, you would think it's a little uh, a little different as a student section, but the reason that it was so wild is always it felt like a, like the high school crowd almost because none of the kids out at Utah State drink or anything like that. So they they would show up like two hours before the game and stay like thirty minutes after, and you don't see that anywhere else. Um, Utah State, crazy. Uh, at Wyoming, awesome place. Wyoming is one of the coolest places I got to coach at. Uh, Colorado State, and then I was lucky enough to – we got to travel out to Hawaii, so that's got to be in my top five is being able to play at Hawaii. That's awesome. Well, Worth, man, we really appreciate you being on. Uh, for everyone that is listening, you can follow Worth on Twitter at WorthGregory40. Um, he provides a lot of good insight and has a lot of great experience playing and coaching. And also for you guys on the East Coast, uh, in the Carolinas, uh, Atlanta area, Tennessee, Virginia, et cetera, um, look him up uh, and, and go train with him. Uh, a lot of credibility, a lot of experience, and a lot of college contacts for, at, for such a young age. Um, so, Worth, thanks for being on, man. We really appreciate you being. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was happy to be able to do this for you guys. Appreciate it, Worth. Thanks again, and we'll be in touch. Stay safe out there, all right? Absolutely. You guys as well. All right. Later. All right, man. Peace. All right. All right see you. Wow, Chris. That was awesome. That was a great interview with Worth. Uh, great guy. And, and uh, he did a phenomenal job giving some uh, really great details and insights, especially as a college coach. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I loved the most was the insight. You know, stuff that we try to preach to the kids and then to actually hear it from somebody that's gone through it. And he's young enough where he, you know, was a guy that went through it as an athlete, played, and then coached it. So I love the insight on how, you know, they handled things on social media, the do's and the, 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 do's and the don'ts, you know, some tips on better making film. I mean, I loved it. You know, anything that we can provide to help you guys keep learning and getting better, we, have, you know, we love, you know, covering these types of topics. Yeah, guys, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fourth Down Experience. And, you know, we'd love to hear your guys' reviews. Uh, please give us a good review if, if this is, you know, good quality content for you all. You know, this is free. Uh, so we put a lot of work and, and hard work and effort into this and, and talking to folks and editing the podcast. It's a lot of time and effort. And, and it's free uh, information for you all. So uh, feel free to go back to the last three years of interviews and during this downtime right now. Uh, check out some really good insight from a lot of credible sources. I agree. You know, the star ratings, guys, uh, it helps us in the podcast world. So if you, we'd appreciate a five-star if you feel like the content is, is great. Leave us a review. 
you know, we'd love to give you a shout out too as well for, for you supporting our podcast. And uh, thanks again for everything you guys do. We'll see you guys next week. Later. Welcome to the Fourth Down Experience podcast. We are an international podcast devoted to discussing special teams topics and interviewing some of the biggest special teams names in the NFL and beyond. Established in 2017, we have enjoyed giving back to the special teams community by discussing current events, offering free tips, and interviewing and sharing the journey of professional specialists and coaches in the football world. We offer a free podcast to you all done on our own time. It is our goal and hope that you become a better specialist because of or find enjoyment in our content. If our program is benefiting you and you're looking for a way to support what we do, please consider becoming a patron and support us. Thank you, and we hope to continue helping you and bring you something enjoyable to listen to. 4DE Nation. Thank you for listening to the 4th Down Experience. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 4th Down Experience.